Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. We spent weeks making our own orgasmo and Chota boy outfits. It was like one of those situations where I was like, you know, common sense to tell you, like, you don't put water on the inside of what you're trying to keep out. I, I, you know what I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then as they say, yeah, get up to Albany, bang a left at the canal, and you go all the way to Buffalo. It's orange, black, furry, and wiggly, kind of like a demonic maggot. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bent, the podcast that hands out full-size musky plugs on Halloween, not tin split shot. Like your cheap ass neighbor, I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and and one of us is really excited <laughs> about it being Halloween tomorrow. Damn right, I am. I dig Halloween, and yeah. to be really honest, man, like beyond it being so fun because I now have kids that are the perfect age mm-hmm. to get really jacked up on Halloween. I I'm not even really sure why I love it so much, but I I guess it's it's somehow I always think of it like the, like the punk metal holiday for some yeah. reason. And I don't know. And I'm also kind of into horror flicks. But um, as I, th- I think we're going to learn today, uh, Halloween does nothing for you, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. No, I'm, I am not a huge fan. Uh, you know, the final nail in my uh, hatred for Halloween coffin came uh, mid-20s, late-20s, something like that, after, after losing a costume contest, right? So a buddy oh. of mine and I, we spent weeks. We had this great idea, and we spent weeks making our own Orgasmo and Chota Boy outfits. No, and, you oh yeah, were not like full on and Chota head Boy. To toe. And you did Chota Boy. <laughs> yeah, I was Orgasmo. He was Chota Boy. And for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, you need to go watch the movie Orgasmo right now. Just do it. Anyway, <laughs> not with the not with the children. No, no children at all. <laughs> Definitely adults only. Uh, but like those costumes were on point, and we worked our butts off. And then we go to like the big costume contest at one of the bars out here and we took second place to a, a group of ladies dressed as scantily clad sheep and that was it for me i was i'm done <laughs> i'm done with this whole holiday like i tried once and what didn't work 
I like how you said scantily clad sheep because like, I know that's not it, even I, creative. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, you are bitter. Yeah. So bitter. So that's bitter. a shame. Oh man, you know what's not bitter? Black hmm. Rifle Coffee. True. And quick reminder that Ben is 100% fueled by Black Rifle Coffee. In fact, we've got so much of it that if you trick-or-treat at my house, I might stick a few of their instant coffee bags in your plastic pumpkin. Ooh. Or give a shot of their extra dark murdered out to your kids just to make <laughs> bedtime more difficult. <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for anybody trick-or-treating at Joe's house. <laughs> Do yourself a favor and head over to blackriflecoffee.com slash meat eater. Get on their subscription service or order just a few bags of their premium roasts and enter the promo code meat eater to get 20% off your order. Yeah. Do all those things. It's like candy for grownups, man. I got to tell you. And I also got to tell you uh, over the last few weeks, we've gotten quite a few notes from you guys asking if we plan to do a Halloween special. And the answer is yes, sort of. I, I'd say we at least, you know, rubbed enough candy corn behind our ears to give this episode a <laughs> Halloween essence. Yeah. At least is how I'd put it. And for the record, I was skeptical. Mm-hmm, All right, I was. I was. But <laughs> then Joe got a hold of some historical gems that completely changed my mind. We cannot actually tell you how we came to be in possession of these nope. clips, but it turns out that in the 80s and 90s, Bill Dance actually tried <laughs> moonlighting as a horror film actor, and he got mm-hmm. surprisingly far. Unfortunately... All of Bill's test reads ended up on the cutting room floor, but as you may have already guessed, we got exclusive permission to air them right here for you. Yes, we do. And we're going to be peppering those throughout the show, okay? And remember, you heard it here first, and if you're shaking your head in complete disbelief right now, uh, believe it. Believe it. Because it's real. Believe it. And here's Bill reading for the 1982 classic Poltergeist. Hello. How are you this morning? Hmm? Doing okay? What do you look like? More purple and brown, kind of a purple look. You can keep that bait in one spot. Yes. What do you look for in a good bait casting rod when you're on a fixed income? I don't know. So, <laughs> see, <laughs> seems like Bill's a little limited in his in his range. Um <laughs> Anyway, that's one of many exclusive Bill Dance horror flick reads to come. Uh, But let's move on to a very, very special regional report. Yeah, it is. We actually have a celebrity on -hmm. the show today for real this time. Not Mm -hmm. like the other celebrities we have on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Right after we first launched Bent, we got a note from Mike Williams, who starred in the little cult classic movie you might remember, the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, and this is this is a true story. We're, we're not bullshitting. We're not making this up. For once. Mike, yeah, yeah for once. Maybe never again, but believe <laughs> us now, okay? Mike is uh, is the guy standing in the corner of the basement at the end of the movie. That um, is Mike Williams. That, that scene still creeps me out to oh, this day. Oh, me too. Day. That, was, <laughs> that was well done. Anyway, turns out Mike lives in New York State, and he's a hardcore fly angler. He sent an email to Bent at TheMeatEater.com, just to say he was digging a show and, you know, offering to help out. We noodled on that for weeks yeah. and came up with nothing. We're like, how are we going to work this into the show? <laughs> and we were talking about it with our buddy and colleague, Sam Lundgren, 
who threw out this great idea and we we're like, yes, that's it. We're doing that. <laughs> so, so what we did uh, was we asked Mike to list and explain his five favorite trout flies for his local streams. Easy, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Very easy. But because we're complete dicks, we said you have to record this information while running through the woods in the pitch dark. A la Blair Witch. And I was like, there's no way Mike's, I told you guys, I was like, there's no way Mike's no, going for this. he's not going to do it. But he was 100% in. He was all about it. So here's Mike Williams from the Blair Witch Project giving you his five top trout flies while legitimately running <laughs> through the woods at night. Hey guys, all right, so for the Croton River system, I'm gonna go with top five flies. Croton's up in New York, Putnam Valley, up in Westchester. So I'm gonna start with a caddis. It's a caddis you can't go wrong with any time of year. Brown caddis, beige caddis, green caddis, gray, I don't care. But you gotta carry caddis at all times. Oh, oh, God damn it, right in my fing eye. Anyway, a sulfur. Gotta have a sulfur emerger. For summer, especially June, July, definitely a sulfur version. And uh, on top of that, I would do, I would do a light. Ow! Son of a bitch. A light Cahill. Oh, God. A light Cahill during the summer, too. The fish here love that. And, of course, hairs here in a pheasant tail. You don't carry that. You don't carry that. God damn it. Well, then you don't know what you're doing. And you're not a fly fisherman. Oh. I hope this helps. Tight lines. Gotta go. Oh, man. Oh. Mike, we thank you for that, man. You were such a good sport. Thanks for reaching out. And you guys should follow Mike on the Instagrams. He's at Sipping Rises. Thank you, Mike. And we're sorry, but, but not really, because that was funny. <laughs> Moving on. It's time to continue the theme of making people uncomfortable, this time with our Smooth Moves segment where we let guides and charter captains bitch about stupid things their clients have done. Yeah, and we're going to throw it back to what I, I call the Upper D session. A few months ago when I spent a few days at the Guide Shack in the Catskills with some good friends, including our amigo Marty Yee, who has a story for us today so frightening it's guaranteed to make you lose control of all your bodily functions. But before we kick it over to Marty, just to set the mood, here's Bill Dance and the Exorcist. Twitch, twitch, pause. Twitch, twitch. Twitch, pause. Twitch, twitch, twitch. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. All right, we've got an on-location smooth moves. I am uh, sitting in one of my favorite places, the uh, official guide shack of Cross Current Guide Service on the Upper Delaware River uh, on the PA New York border, sitting here with our good friend and guide, Marty Yee. Hi, Marty. Hey, hey how, how are, are you? you? I'm great. How are you? I'm terrific. It's good to see you good to in see person. You as always. In person. I yeah. feel like our relationship is more... Digitally it's very based. digital. It's very text-based. <laughs> it's a text-based relationship. <laughs> but here we are. We're hanging out and doing some fishing. So uh, why not record uh, a smooth moves yeah. with you? How, now, how long have you been a guide, Marty? Remind me. So I'm I'm relatively new in, in that sense. This is my fourth year. I'm on my fourth season. This okay, year, but so. four years is enough time to see some ridiculous shit. Oh yeah, I mean for for the amount of days that 
that we're out. It's uh, yeah, we see a lot of people, a lot of situations, a lot of weird things. Yeah, you guys <laughs> get a lot of New York City clientele and New stuff. City, yeah, yeah. Like you see, you pull people from all over the place all up over. here. Yep. So hit me, man. Uh, what's the one that sticks out in your mind? That's like the I just don't believe that shit just happened. Yeah. So this was actually my first year. I was very new, like very green cherry, and it may, it may have been like my one of my first trips. Really, now that I think about it. But, okay. So this guy, a real nice guy, comes up. Uh, he's he's from uh, somewhere downstate, and uh, he's somewhat new to fly fishing. He's trying to get back into it. So we we talk, and he's like, you know, I need I don't have waders, I don't have gear. I'm sure, like, that's fine. I'm like, well, I got everything. What size are you? How oh, perfect? I got my old backup pair. You can wear. Okay. Right? So it's fine. Everything's great. We we meet up. We're out on the water. We actually have a pretty decent day. Like for you know for my first year guiding yeah. considered, and and he's not a great you know at the time wasn't a great angler. Right, right. Um, but you know we we school I schooled him up. We got on some fish, and then I, you know throughout the day I always check with people, like hey, do you need to take a leak? Do you need <laughs> right. to use the rest? Yeah, do you want to yeah, step yeah. out? Stretch yeah. your legs. So I realized we're like an hour, like six of the day, and the guy hasn't taken a piss once. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, c- I can do that. Yeah, but this, me too. This yeah. guy, you know, is a little bit older in age, and I, I, I take that into consideration. So I'm like, dude, you know, do you want me to pull over? Do you want to like take a leak? He's like, no, throughout the day. He's like, I'm good. I'm like, okay, go out the day, <laughs> stick a couple more fish, you know, eat lunch, hanging out. Finally, again, b- back to like hour six, seven, I'm like, all right, so do you need to piss? Because I'm going to get out and piss. And he's like, I've been pissing. And I laughed. I was like, I was like, ha ha ha. And he was like, no, I've been pissing in the waiters. And I was like, excuse me. He's like, oh, is it not like a wetsuit? I'm like, absolutely not. Shit, dude. You know, these are my old. Were they boot foots? Or stocking foot? Uh, They were. They were boot foot, actually. So he was just filling his boots with piss all day long. Absolutely. And he he thought it was like a wetsuit. He thought like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a wetsuit or dry suit. Either one. You're not supposed to pee in wetsuits either. I don't know. I don't. I'm not, I don't dive or anything. But turns out he just like I'm sure he went a bunch of times. And then he felt he felt so bad. And but you know it was like one of those situations where I was like, you know, common sense will tell you like you don't put water on the inside of what you're trying to keep. Out, I, you know what I mean, yeah. So turns out the guy ends up buying those waiters. <laughs> so he acquired a new pair of used waiters. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's one of many stories I've had in the last couple of years. So. Dude, that's so gross. It is gross. Um, How uncomfortable is that to fish all day and you're just pissing well, in your sure waders? You, I'm sure you've had water in your waders. Yeah, exactly, man. Like that's, just getting water down your waders. I know. Like when I have a leak in my waders, instantly I'm like, there's a, there's a leak in my waders. And yeah. It's very uncomfortable. And I'm like, I don't want these on anymore. This and guy, I want new waders immediately. This guy just didn't give a shit. He just pissed. Essentially, he was pissing his pants too because he remembered he was still wearing like, I don't know, whatever pant, like shorts or jeans, whatever he was wearing underneath. So he was still urinating like in his underwear and pants as well as inside of my backup waiters. You know what? All right. People are going to be all over this guy. <laughs> like I can, I can I'm already hear or imagine the feedback we're going to get. And people are going to be like, what kind of dumbass pisses and waiters? <laughs> uh, I can see how this might happen. All right. For, for folks who know wetsuits, you're supposed to piss in them. That's part of the wait, deal. That's what you do wait, in wetsuits. Wait, wait. Wait, are you? Yes. I thought you weren't supposed to piss in your wetsuit. You don't piss in dry suits. You do piss in wetsuits. Yes. Okay. In fact, particularly uh, if you're in cold water, pissing in wetsuits is like what you look forward to because it's a little little (laughs) jolt of heat all over your body, right? And and so 
I can imagine someone who's only been in wetsuits and it's their first time in waders might assume that it's the same, you know, let's call it evacuation protocol. All right. right. <laughs> but that said, how miserable would it be to marinate in your own urine all day? Yeah. To me, ah, man, this, it, it's just terrible to me, man. Ugh. But I'm also that dude, like, I get a drop of barbecue sauce on my shirt and I want to change it immediately. So I I couldn't I couldn't just like fish in piss filled waders all day, just icky. All right, we're gonna we're gonna stick with the theme of icky, which you know Halloween and icky. That's what we got for you. Joe's got a book for us this week. Yes, Joe can read. Yes, yes, he can. <laughs> it's almost time for freaking Philistines, where we choose a book, like an actual book with printed words and everything that we feel is worthy of your time and attention. This one fits the Halloween and, and horror flick motif. We are entering the world of large predators, which is apparently something Bill Dance knows all about because here he is in the predator. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. He's as big as I thought he was, but he's a good one. He just looked big down in that water. We're all gonna die. <laughs> but, <laughs> but unlike the somewhat racist depiction of the alien in that movie, the predator in the book Joe's going to tell us about was actually real and much bigger and badder than anyone could imagine. So listen up and get ready to put down your screens and read, you freaking Philistines. What's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm a Philistine. I have been obsessed with sharks since I was a tiny little kid. When I turned 18, I couldn't run to the tattoo parlor fast enough to get a great white inked on my leg. So it should be no surprise that Jaws is my all-time favorite movie and, in my opinion, the greatest fishing movie of all time. But what many people don't realize is that Jaws was inspired by a very real reign of shark terror that occurred along the Jersey coast in the summer of 1916. And Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfuss, even references those attacks in Jaws. And while it may not be a fishing book per se, anyone who loves sharks or Jaws or fishing for nasty predator fish really needs to read Michael Capuzzo's Close to Shore. It is the most detailed, beautifully written account of the events that took place that summer. And it is, it's by far my favorite work of historical nonfiction. All right? And Close to Shore reads like an adventure novel. And what makes this adventure all the more fascinating is the period of time in which it's taking place. This was the final summer before the U.S. entered World War I. Vacationing at the beaches was just really growing in popularity because train lines could carry folks from New York and Philadelphia to the coast pretty quickly. It was easier to get there. And just as it is now, in modern times, the beach was a safe, happy, carefree environment, which makes the juxtaposition of these brutal attacks much starker. The first victim, 23-year-old Charles Van Zant, was attacked on July 1, 1916, while his parents watched in sheer horror from the beach. And Van Zant was swimming with his dog in front of the Ingleside Hotel in Beach Haven, New Jersey. And Capuzzo describes the attack in truly blood-curdling detail. And Charles was actually rescued and made it to the beach alive, but the shark had just done a number on his leg, and it severed his femoral artery. 
Now, his father, who was actually a doctor, rushed him to the hotel office, agonizing because they knew they'd never get him to the closest hospital about 20 miles away in time. So they made a makeshift operating table out of the office door. But despite their best efforts and with limited supplies, Charles died of shock and massive hemorrhaging at the hotel. Now, the passage that follows Charles' death really sets the tone for the rest of the book. And you can see just how closely it mirrors the plot line of Jaws. That evening, a hush fell over the Ingleside dining room. But after dinner, hotel guests cornered fishermen and baymen and other wizened veterans of the shore who drifted on and off the veranda all night long. The red trails of pipes and cigars waved in the night, and the number of people who had witnessed the attack seemed to grow by the hour. Robert Engel tried to remain stoic and calm as reporters from Philadelphia newspapers scuttled about the lobby and veranda, questioning his guests. Disagreements and arguments broke out, until finally a consensus emerged of suspects in young Van Zandt's death. A giant tuna, a shark, but most likely a giant sea turtle, which had the power, the fishermen said, to snap a man in half. The attending physician had a different opinion. He recorded the primary cause of death on Van Zandt's death certificate as hemorrhage from femoral artery, left side, with the contributory cause being bitten by a shark while bathing. It was the first time a shark bite had appeared as an official cause of death in U.S. history. Seeking to reassure his guests, Engel stood and declared bathers had nothing to worry about. The next morning, the hotel would erect a netting around the beach, strong enough to block German U-boats. Swimming in the clear, paradisal waters of the Ingleside would go on as usual. But a somber mood pervaded the Ingleside that evening, as one by one, the hundreds of room lights that cast out over the shore winked out. A new and nameless fear had seized the guests, a fear of the unknown as well as a fear of the sea. Even those who watched the attack had little notion of what they had witnessed except to agree, as W.K. Barclay told whoever would listen, Mr. Van Zandt's death was the most horrible thing I ever saw. That scene sets the tone for the entire rest of the book. And of course, more attacks followed after Van Zandt, which set off a media frenzy and hysteria that ultimately led to shark hunts coastwide with everything from rifles to nets to dynamite to baiting hooks with cow lungs. And interestingly, and while I don't want to give too much of the ending away, the culprit remains a mystery and is still debated to this day. Was it a white shark or was it a bull shark? And Capuzzo does a terrific job of breaking down all sides of the argument towards the end of the story. But the most important takeaway from Close to Shore is that without these attacks from 1916, there probably would have been no Jaws. These events single-handedly created the mindset that sharks are vicious killers that need to be feared, which sadly still persists today with many people, despite time and science, debunking the idea that sharks are ferocious manhunters. Now that your blood is fully curdled, let's shift from a history lesson to current events. It's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. So, here we go. This is the part of the show where we fill you guys in on the most pertinent fish or fishing-related news we think you good people need to know about, or in some cases, uh, we just give you whatever we can find this week <laughs> that somehow loosely connects... To the overriding theme of fishing that we try to maintain. Uh, as a reminder, this is a competition, 
at the end of news, our tremendously talented and rather good-looking audio engineer, Phil, will declare a news winner. And I got to say, like, we don't we don't take this lightly. You know what I mean? I'm scared like this. It's it's every week. It's like stepping into a cage match. And while while I may be heavier, Miles is faster and more nimble. And and, and Phil has great hair. Let me just point that out. (laughs) But, you know, this takes bravery, people similar, (laughs) I'd imagine, to the bravery that uh, Bill Dance had to muster when he encountered Jason Voorhees for the first time in Friday, the 13th, part eight. Jason takes Manhattan. And do we have a clip of that lined up, Phil? I believe we do. Here's what that sounded like. What you gonna do, Buster? Huh? What you gonna do? Huh? Gonna show off a little? So, I think... I think think Miles is about to show off a little bit. (laughs) How do you... Because... (laughs) Because how do you follow up Bill Dance doing that? I don't know, but you're the leadoff man, oh, which means you get to deliver right, the first machete right. thrust to the shoulder. <laughs> okay, so what gotta, you got? I got I got to recenter here. <clears throat> uh, so okay, despite my admitted disdain for Halloween, I'm, I'm leading off with kind of a little like a sort of spooky story. Ah, okay. To start off, fish news this week. All right. Dan Boudry was fishing an undisclosed location near Paris, Tennessee recently, which is just a nice way of him saying that he doesn't want all you jerk nuts coming to his fishing hole. But considering what happened to him, I don't know that I would fish this spot, even if he had named it or I did live within driving distance of Paris, Tennessee. Anyway, Dan was fishing a jointed crankbait from shore when he hooked into a, a respectable little largemouth bass. Nothing, nothing to crow about. Nothing, nothing's gonna win any contest, but not a dink, a decent, you know, a decent bass, a yeah. nice everyday bass. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Dan brings in his bass, and uh, as he he goes to remove the hook, he sees the head of a live and writhing snake looking up at him from inside the bass's mouth. Okay. All right. From, from the look of the photo that Dan posted, I'm guessing he freaked out at that point and then just like dropped the fish. Which okay. is like a totally understandable reaction, but I say that because in the shot, both the bass and the crankbait are just covered in dirt, and there's like like fallen leaves like stuck to the back of the bass. Oh, dude, it's the classic dirt shot. You see like people gripping grin on, yeah. on, on on Instagram, and it's like the fish is just covered in leaves. It's, it's like an exactly eyeball poking that. out. I'm like, ah, that's like a pet peeve of mine. Dunk the damn thing back in the water for a second. But in this case, I think it's totally valid. Like, well, normally, yeah. I, I hate on the dirt shot. But this one... I'm not scalding him. I'm scalding all the other people that are like, look what I got this weekend. I'm like, it's a pile of dirt and leaves. Oh, but like, when you look at the picture, I get it again, because you don't notice the dirt fish. What you notice is the snake front and center sticking out of the bass's gullet and, and supposedly writhing around inside of its mouth. But uh, good news for Dan. The fish was hooked on the outside of the jaw, which you can also clearly see in the photo. The front treble is hooked on the outside of of the fish's mandible. So he was able to retrieve his lure without ever putting his fingers into striking distance. Because again, this fish, the the, the snake rather, was alive at this point. Right. Even even better news for Dan and, and the bass. The snake was identified as a northern water snake 
not the more dangerous water moccasin, which okay. share habitat and range and look pretty similar. But, you know, like you don't know in that moment. Well, yeah, right? no, no. Like you have no idea. And and while water snakes can grow over four feet long, they're not poisonous. So Dan was never in any real danger. But again, like I said, he didn't know that at the time. Dan told a local reporter, quote, I'm new to Tennessee, so I'm not real familiar with the look of venomous species here. <laughs> Dan successfully released the bass after snapping those uh, those photos. So the only real loser in this story is the snake who was, I mean, assumedly digested by the bass after it got let go. Well, I could go way off on a water snake misidentified as a poisonous snake story that my mom ended up having to kill with a shovel, but that would take too long. That would take too long. So I'm going to tack on a few more things. One, I've been to Paris, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's like the catfish capital of Tennessee or something like that. Uh, But I was there. I was hanging out on the property of Hank Williams Jr. with Hank III, and I caught a bunch of crappies out of out of Hank Williams Pond before he kicked us off the property. That's another story I don't have time for right now. <laughs> but I think the overriding thing here, the thing I take away from this the most, that's what I was wondering. What kind of snake is it? That's a big question. But besides that, how many times over the years have you seen somebody, it's actually pretty recently, trying to push a snake lure? Savage Gear, oh, yeah. I believe it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Only a couple of years ago at, at iCast, their big release, and of course, they're the ones that are always like making the bats and the baby panda and the yeah, marsupial. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Their big thing was a snake. And even way before that, I've got old soft plastics in the garage. I don't even remember what companies, but they're they're like molded garter snakes. And they're, Absolutely. they're been these people that like really try and push that as a food source. Like you, like you need to be doing snake. <laughs> Same to time, fishing the snake you know, bite. Yeah. Same time, dude. How many hundreds of thousands of snakes have I watched swim across ponds and ditches? And I've never seen one get eaten. So, I mean, I know it happens, but that's every time I, I see the, the the snake in the fish mouth thing, that's what I think is that there are actually people out there trying to promote that and tell you, like, you got to use more snake. They eat these things all the time. They do this all the time. And I'm not so convinced. I think it's like ducklings. No. I think it's pretty it, rare. It, it happens occasionally. Um, there's a great video out there somewhere of someone doing a homemade snake bait, like rattlesnake bait and getting giant rainbow trout on one. But just cause it has happened and someone caught it on camera, doesn't mean that it's the thing that you should be chasing for your bite. That's exactly. what I'll say. I, the reason that, that I gravitated to the story was really just like, Dan was such a relatable character to me. He's like, I don't know what just happened, but <laughs> I caught a bass and there's a snake head sticking out and it's looking at me and I didn't know what to do. And, and so really for me, the, the reason that what sold me on this story was Dan. So thank you, Dan. I, I feel like you're someone I could hang out with. I feel the same way. I love Dan. I love the story. And it's kind of like a little theme as of late, because I did not grab this as a news story, but there's also the one going around and the dude is just chiefing on that alligator, but it's coming up out of dark water. He doesn't know what it is. And he's just cranking on the side of the boat and like heaving. All of a sudden that head pops up. So there's yep. been like some some fishing reptile uh, things things happening. Just in lately. time for Halloween. Just in time for Halloween. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I don't have a Halloween tie here. I have to go history lesson, but I know you're going to like this story. Uh, This one comes to us from discovermagazine.com. Headline, how old family fishing photos unlock the history of Atlantic fisheries. Damn it. Oh, it happened. 12 episodes. I just jacked your shit, didn't I? You just jacked my shit, man. (laughs) It was going to happen sooner or later. Oh, man. You just got me. But I guarantee that I have a whole whole sidebar of this that you didn't cover. So I'll just follow you up. You go right on ahead. Oh, man. Well, history just got made. I said it's a history lesson. History just got made. You're listening to it right now. The first, the first news clash. Is this the story that you thought I would grab? No, I thought you were going to get the the snake bass one. That's why I led no. with that one. I Which, thought I was this is safe so ironic, on this one because that's that's more of a me story, and I didn't even see that one. Well, I have to continue. Uh, we're we're, yep. we're the, the the clock is running, my friend. Go. Uh, anyway, this story centers around Rusty Hudson, which is a badass name. I got to sneak that in there, Rusty Hudson. <laughs> Very cool name. Anyway, Rusty grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he's been in the fishing industry his whole life. Starting at age nine, he was the bait boy on his grandfather's charter boat, whose name happened to be Captain Jake Stone. Also a hella badass name, just an observation. Like, it's, is True. this a real family? No, the whole family's char- just a bunch of badasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are they a real family or characters from Roadhouse? I'm really not sure, uh, but I digress there. So Rusty worked on family fishing boats all through the 60s, and one of his many jobs as a young man was taking photos of the clients with their catch at the end of the day. Add up all those years, and it's a ton of photos, right? 
And here's where it gets interesting. From the story, years later, the historic photos are providing more than just memories of a fun day fishing on the water. Hudson realized how valuable his family photos could be in recreating the catch from the 1940s through 70s, a time before scientific monitoring programs collected data on recreational and for hire fisheries. And he says, I felt the for hire pictures of the past could illustrate the range of fishing conditions and catches to fishery scientists and managers. Um, and Hudson says, knowing more about the fisheries of the past could help us all better understand the health of fish populations today. And this notion ultimately led to the creation of the Fishery Project. And the story says it started after Rusty took part in a stock assessment for Red Snapper in the South Atlantic. And during that time, he showed scientists in the program these hundreds of historic photos he had. And that kind of kickstarted the discussion. But it, it takes a lot of manpower and a lot of time to analyze all these photos. It's a huge job. So there's a big group out there. Some of you may have heard of it, South Atlantic Fishery Management Council. And those folks are responsible for the conservation and management of fisheries in federal waters from North Carolina through the Florida Keys. And they created something called the Citizen Science Program. And that works with fishermen, scientists, and managers to co-create citizen science projects that align with SAFMC's research needs. So this citizen science program teamed up with Hudson and NOAA fishery scientists to create a project to work with volunteers, uh, what they're calling citizen scientists, and they are the ones that are now analyzing all of these historic photos. So Fishery is all online-based. It's a volunteer program. Anyone of any skill level uh, can, can join the fun because even if you know a little about fish, they have programs within the program to you know, teach you how to identify all the different species. And they identify and count them. Each photo is analyzed by more than one volunteer. If there's a big discrepancy, it gets kicked up to experts. And um, I think this is the part where we're, we're going to, since now I know we have the same story, like I think the follow-up to this we're, we may differ on. But, but Hudson calls this a dream come true and believes the analyzing of these photos can, can inform future science. And to be clear, this only started last May. So it's, right now it's only Hudson's hundreds of photos that are being analyzed but there are over 1,400 volunteers. They've made over 25,000 classifications. There are still hundreds of photos to analyze. And if this works, then the team hopes to expand it to collect photos from other fishermen and stakeholders all across the South Atlantic. Now, on the surface, I think this is super cool. And bravo yeah. on the idea. And I think we both, I mean, I, I just love looking at old fishing photos. Absolutely. So, so this is great. And I feel like kind of a jerk, kind of, but I got to say that I also think this is flawed a bit. And I'm not entirely certain this is as valuable as, as Rusty hopes. But mm. before I go on, since, since I know we've crossed over, I'm going to let you jump in. Like, what, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? So I had a different lead to this because I think you missed some of the, the historical context on this one. Okay. And, and that's where I think this actually becomes valuable and interesting. Right. And I think, I think it, I think it, we need to start by saying like we like a good grip and grin photo as much as anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. we except maybe Lance V, we like a good grip and grin <laughs> photo as much as anybody you might meet. But and in fact, in fact, just just a little heads up here, we've got a whole segment devoted to grip and grins that's going to come up after fish news. But like I love the idea that that grip and grin photos have the potential to to do like actual good in the world. So mm -hmm. that's that's the first part of the story that I appreciate is like Me finding too. something 
Yes. Substantively good about Grip and Grins because people love to hate on them so much. And and this is a way of being like, oh, you hate Grip and Grins? Look at this. Science. Yep. Also, <laughs> I love citizen science. It's something I'm really big on. But there's some there's some some history here that I think is really important. And so give me a chance to set up where I think I might maybe be able to change your mind about the validity of this. Okay. Well, okay? do you, do you want to hear my like the end of my argument before before you, we're duking it out? That's we're like up to double, you. Double duking it out today. I, we are. I'll just say, and again, if I miss something, shame on me uh but the thing is like i feel like this works because you've got this guy that's got hundreds of photos from the same docs from the same area yep. for all those years but that's not an easy thing to find elsewhere it's not easy to find a vast collection of fish photos from a given area over this massive date range which i feel like if you're actually going to pull any useful data from a study like this you need to have what he has and in my mind, it's also like we already we know stocks are declining. We know that that's a given. But if you had like captain's log data on sea temps for all those years, weather patterns, how much bait they were seeing, okay. But I don't know. I I, I read it as they're just IDing and counting fish for the most part. Because what else do they get out of a photo? And you know, Rusty had said these photos help capture a range of fishing conditions. How? Like, I, am I missing something? Yeah, so here's this isn't the first time this has been done, and this is this is where I think I, I, this is what I where I see the value in this. Okay? okay, so let me let me start with a little bit of background. The term "shifting baseline syndrome" was coined to describe humans' general inability to measure long-term changes in our natural environment, right? Okay. Because because individuals only live for a short period of time in comparison to the life of a species, it's very difficult for us to accurately assess long-term changes in the world around us. Right. Whatever you experience throughout your life dictates your baseline for normal. But that okay. baseline resets or shifts with the next generation. Right. So like when 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 you're like, hey, grandma, I had a great I had a great day today. I, I caught like six trevally and two puffer fish and a barracuda. And grandma's like, that's not a great day. That's terrible. When I was your age, we could do that in an hour. And they were all bigger than the ones you caught. And that, I know too many grandmas who I exactly. can't talk to because they're like, oh, you had a good day. Yeah. You think no, that was a good sucked. day? I'll tell you what a good day. And, and the thing is, in that case, you're both right. It's just that concepts of good or pristine they get reset generationally and that's where we get this idea of the shifting baseline syndrome and that's become a central tenet across the natural sciences right researchers recognize that that our planet and the populations of plants and animals that live here have changed dramatically in the past 150 years but we as individuals don't generally notice those changes because they they happen too slowly Right. Okay. And and this this concept is a big deal these days, uh, and and a lot of our listeners have probably heard of it. But the thing is, what we're talking about right now with Rusty, this has happened before. Fishing played a major part in people coming up with the idea of the shifting baseline theory. It was originally put forth by a fisheries biologist named Daniel Pauly back in 1995. Pauly proposed that our fish stocks had declined far more than the research was able to recognize and that we needed to look at, or that scientists needed to look at anecdotal historical evidence to really understand how much things had changed. By anecdotal historical evidence, he was proposing that scientists need to put stock in things that they had traditionally ignored, right? We don't have the, the scientific measured data going back that far on all these things. So people, people weren't looking at them. So we got to use what we have. And in this case, it's like stories from old timers and, and photographs. And like he even proposed using old menus. And so one of the, the, the seminal follow-up papers on this theory is called Documenting the Loss of Large Trophy Fish in the Florida Keys 
through historical photographs. Its author, Lauren McClenachan, proposed that, quote, historical photographs provide visual and quantitative evidence of changes in mean individual fish size and species composition for groups of marine fish that have been targeted by sport fishing. So he looked at Key West Bragboard charter photos from 1956 to 2007. And what he found was, was pretty damn shocking. Mean fish size declined by over 88%. And the charters went from catching lots of large predators, like big groupers and sharks, to primarily small snappers. So this is all like what you're talking about, this new project that's being proposed. This has happened before. They're just scaling it up and trying to leverage what some other researchers have done through citizen science into a bigger project. And I think that is damn cool. Like this is, this is not new research theory. They're just growing it. Okay. So I'll just jump in. I'll, first I'll apologize because this should have been your story <laughs> because you said much more smarter things about it than I did. You did far more research. You've informed the listener far more than I ever could. And I'd like to go on record right now and say, Phil, if this was the Sway story for a winner, I'd like you to please attribute this story to Miles. Um, <laughs> because you just said some really smart shit that just made me feel real dumb. Um, uh, and I have to live with that. But yeah. there, there, was our first, there was our first crossover. I felt like a winner because it was my turn. And you have made me the loser. So good, good on you. <laughs> well, I want, I want to, I, I, I'll take that, and I appreciate that. And I just want to throw one more thing in here at the end because I do think this is very cool. And like I said, I'm a huge proponent of citizen science. If you guys are interested in getting involved, you should go to SciStarter.org. That's S-C-I Starter.org, and enter Fish Story into the keyword search. Uh, and yeah, I just think it's a great project and I really hope it's successful because I'd love to see it implemented elsewhere and go into fisheries that I know something about because I would totally get involved. Now, see, I didn't even bother with the link because I was like, this is, this is dumb. <laughs> Shit. I feel awful right now. I've ruined my afternoon. Damn it. What's your next story? Let's get away from this. <laughs> that was my second story. It's you're you're closing oh. it out, dude. Oh, so we've oh, so it's a weird thing today. Oh yeah. man. So maybe that story is now a wash, and Phil just has to go on your first story and my last story. I, I disagree with that. In which it case, is not a wash. in which case, congratulations, because <laughs> this ain't touching bass and snakes. Though I do, I do, I do find it interesting. Uh, I think this is worth noting. Uh, interesting little tidbit here from my neck of the woods and fitting since we just had Ray Liotta on talking New York <laughs> salmon. He's smiling yeah. about this because it's it's directly helping his tackle business. Um, and this actually comes directly from uh, New York.gov. Headline on this one, Governor Cuomo announces program to extend fishing season and improve renowned angling experience in Western New York. And here's what it says. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced the start of a new pilot program as part of the Reimagine the Canals initiative that uses water from the Erie Canal to enhance already renowned fishing opportunities in Western New York. And this was originally announced as part of the governor's State of the State address in January 2020. The program will encourage New Yorkers and visitors to experience the state's canal system in a different way while also expanding tourism and bolstering small business in the region. So to back up a little bit, I'm betting most of you, at least a good chunk of you, have heard of the Erie Canal, at least, right? I think there was a song about <laughs> I think, it. I, I, I think, think that's the same I think bet. there was a song about it. <laughs> Somebody wrote it. Anyway. Have uh, you ever heard the, of the Great know. Lakes? <laughs> 
Anyway, the Erie Canal runs from Albany to Buffalo. It was completed in 1825. And for the non-history folk back in the day, right, that was the super highway of the country, or the East Coast, at least, for getting goods from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. You'd go from the ocean up the Hudson River past New York City to Albany. And then as they say, yeah, get up to Albany, bang a left at the canal. You bang a left at the canal, and you go all the way to Buffalo. So extremely, (laughs) extremely historically significant. But honestly, now it's just kind of sitting there doing nothing, right? Like I read a little bit of cargo still transported on it time to time, but it's mostly just considered a heritage historic thing. You know, take a boat ride, get an ice cream, and so on. But uh, for years, New York's been trying to figure out how to use the canal to attract more tourists, which I don't think has been super easy. Like, it's not that riveting of a thing. It's just, a, you know, it's just a straight line of, of, of kind of stagnant water. Um, but then meanwhile, you've got all these tributaries of Lake Ontario that see runs of steelhead and salmon and browns, which boost the economy because so many anglers come to chase them. So here's what Cuomo says. This fall, New York is enhancing some of our world-class fisheries and expanding opportunities for anglers into December by creatively using water from the Erie Canal to bolster fishing conditions and extend the season. And he says, as a fisherman, which I got to tell you, I don't live in New York, but I've been watching a lot of Cuomo over the last He's a few fisherman? months. Yeah, like you can't get away from from Cuomo out here on the no. on the television. Don't we can't see him get away as a fisherman. Cuomo. Yeah, you can't. You yeah, you're Cuomo'd in Montana. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. I'd love to know what kind of fisherman he is. I don't yeah. see him fishing. Um, but he says, I'm pleased to see our incredible Lake Ontario tributaries will be host to even better experience for our anglers. This innovative use of iconic infrastructure continues our strong tradition of ecotourism while supporting our small businesses. And, um, and it goes on here. The, the New York State Canal Corporation says, by increasing the levels and flows in streams, it will encourage fish to travel further upstream, which expands areas for ideal fishing conditions. In addition, the Canal Corporation will extend the annual draining of the canal in western New York to create a longer season for anglers. So I think this is cool and smart, right? Because while there are a few tailwaters in the mix out here, most of these trips are rain and groundwater reliant. Right. Mm-hmm. So this really could extend the amount of time that they're holding fish and dare I say, maybe spread people out a bit, maybe <laughs> just a little bit. It's probably asking a lot. And I, I don't know. Uh, could be wishful thinking, but it's a smart economic move. And the story actually says the canal has provided a bit of a lifeline in the covid economy because it's essentially stimulating the outdoor economy for a few extra months. A lot of these rivers, you know, by the end of the fall, and in November, there's there's just not enough water in them anymore for the fish to run, or it's over. So, they're 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 given businesses tied to fishing, be it motels or restaurants, tackle shops, a few extra months. And I just found it refreshing because you hear so many stories about resources being fought for and and withheld that I just feel like it, it's nice to hear one where it's like, you guys need this water. Let's all have harmony here. Here you go. Yeah, no, that's a great story. My question on the follow up, I've got a couple, but the first one is. Having more water, do you think there's a chance that that will boost recruitment? Like those fish are running up there to spawn, right? And and if those those tribs end up getting dewatered post spawn, I would imagine that some of those those reds go dry or the, the sure. oxygen levels go down. I mean, is it possible that this would even increase the the recruitment of all those age classes and and help the population more broadly, not just extend the season? It certainly could, but then you have to keep up with it, right? And and here's the reality of these streams. There there's certain ones that were sort of pre-programmed to have these runs, the big streams where this was a, a state program. But you have all these other streams that come into Ontario, 
and just sort of by default, you know, a couple steelhead go wayward, a couple salmon yeah. go wayward, and they yeah, established yeah. these tribs that were not necessarily originally stocked to create a run. So then you have, you know, a lot of these these fisheries that are in flux. It's like one year, I, I'm, I'm making up the Sandy Creek, whatever. It's like, dude, it was banging last year, and it might not happen again for three years, all based on conditions. So if this works and really does what they think and, and shows a little boost and gets angler numbers up and stimulates the economy, whatever, if this is something they're willing to do year over year to extend that flow based on the Erie Canal that's just sitting there, hell yeah, it could create much better fishery long-term in a lot of these tribs that are just sort of hit or miss. That's man, that, that is a, That is a really good feel good story. And, and particularly taking something that has been used for commerce and other industry that's no longer being needed and transition that over to helping fisheries. I, I love that. I love that yeah. story. It's a man, simple that, piece, but it's, it's, that's a, a, it's a good one. It's a feel, it's a, good it's a feel one. good piece. So now all the people fishing for the, the fake steelhead, they, that's that's a win for them. You know what I'm saying? It is. And, the it is. and you know what, Joe? From uh, for, I, I think I sent you a link about this recently. There are some really, really terrible and awkward grip and grin photos that come out of those fisheries every year. <laughs> yeah. Aren't yeah, there? A, a lot of the a lot of the art of those photos is positioning yourself in a way to make it appear as if you are the only one there. So every time I see grip and grins out of the Ontario and Erie tribs and it's like just dude, like majestically by himself, I'm like, how did you have to move around to get the 25 other people out of the photo? Yeah. yeah. We here at, at, at bent, we are big fans of the awkward fishing photo as a genre. Uh, yeah. We and really this is are. Leading to, I just took one beating in news and now I'm going to take another one. Go ahead. Tell them what we're doing <laughs> after Phil. I just want all of you to enjoy the next few minutes as we lavish praise and derision upon Young Joe in our new segment, Awkward Moments in Angling. What's the deal, guys? Isn't this the Halloween special? I wanted some more uh, spook in your stories, like some sort of serial killer fish who kills teenage fish for spawning at fish summer camp or something. Miles's domination in your shared story aside, he's also the only one who brought a semi-freaky story with the snake inside the fish, which is why I am crowning Miles Nolte the bent king of Halloween. Congrats, Miles. I know how important Halloween is to you and how much you love it. This must be a very special moment in your life. Don't eat too much candy now. We have a brand spanking new segment that we're rolling out for you today. Fishing pictures can be hilariously bad, and that makes sense. You know, there's there's always a camera around, or usually the, the photos are, are often rushed because someone's holding a slippery-ass fish that has no interest in getting its picture taken. And and the person in the photo is is often less concerned about how they look than how the fish they're holding looks. All these factors conspire to consistently create truly awkward imagery. We decided we wanted to have some fun with this genre of bad photography in what we're calling awkward moments in angling. Why don't you take a picture of the last longer? Ah. All right. So, and I'm I'm laughing having not said anything because I I. I'm about to be victim number one, but that's okay. I'm, I'm game. You'll, you'll, it, it won't hurt too much. All right. So <laughs> here's how it works. 
We're going to take an awkward fishing photo and describe it for you. We'll also probably make some jokes at the expense of the subject of the photo, maybe the photographer as well, who knows, and we reserve the right to invent a completely fictitious backstory if we're so inclined. If you want to see the actual photos we're describing, you can find them on our Instagram pages. That's at JoeCermelli138 and at WaterMiles. In order to be fair about this, we're going to start with our own photos. Joe and I will each take a stab at burning photos from each other's past, but that's going to get boring quick, yeah. uh, and we'd like to <laughs> deepen our pool of options. So if you have an awkward fishing photo that you'd like to have mercilessly heckled on a podcast, please send it to bent at themediator.com. If we choose your photo, you will get a sweet thank you gift from us that will make both of your friends jealous. <laughs> All right. So. For this first episode, Joe's mom, who is a very nice and patient woman for the record, sent a couple photos of Joe from the early 90s. <laughs> and even though this segment has just started, I'm already going to break the rules because instead of choosing just one photo, I'm going to describe them both. Oh, come on, dude. See, Joe? you said we, we yeah, can't keep yeah. using ourselves because it'll get boring. I actually could provide enough photos for like months of this, but like I'm giving you one shot, so... Yeah, that's right. And I'm making the most of it with, with both photos. So are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. So in this first photo, we see eight-year-old Joe. And, and maybe some of you would first notice the very small bluegill he's hoisting out in front of him. <laughs> it's still hooked to the line, dangling about 18 inches under a classic red and white bobber. But not me. No. The first thing that jumps out to me in this picture is apparel. So is it the idyllic Mickey Mouse Club hat that's cocked jauntily on his head? No. Is it the generic t-shirt he's wearing that's either printed with boilerplate fishing art or maybe Voltron because the lady <laughs> makes it difficult to distinguish? No, not that either. The clothing choice that really jumps off this photo for me is the blue nightmarish modern art vomitorium print on little Joe's Zumba's pants. Zubaz, now, get it right. Zubaz. Zubaz. Sorry. Zubaz. Little Joe's Zubaz pants. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know Zubaz, because you either missed or blocked out the early 90s, here's the best description for them that I've ever heard brought to you by the Gothamist. Quote, Zubaz are basically a sweatpants, chef pants, hammer pants hybrid featuring an elastic waist and an oversized leg that gradually tapers as it nears the ankle. They were very popular amongst the Joey Buttafuoco set in the early <laughs> 90s. End quote. They still make <laughs> Zubaz so pants for the record. You can still they, buy they them. They do. I might be wearing them now. You don't know. <laughs> I, I, I Thankfully, I can't tell. What's so great about this whole outfit is the cognitive dissonance between the Mouseketeer hat <laughs> And the Joey Buttafuoco pants. I feel like we're seeing a picture of little Joe in transition. At the top of his head, he's wearing an almost too on the nose symbol of American youthful innocence, <laughs> while down south, he's rocking pants better affiliated with sexually predacious Long Island Guidos. <laughs> and that leads us to the second photo from a year later. This shot, which oh, appears to be taken shit. on the same wooden dock <laughs> overhanging the same neighborhood lake, uh -huh. shows just how far young Joe has come. 
Joe really seems to be embracing the New Jersey Italian-American stereotype. His sleeveless, baggy t-shirt glows a color that can only be described as electric salmon. He's also clearly growing into his identity as a serious angler. That Mickey Mouse hat? Gone. Now, Joe's rocking a white foam trucker hat with the word shark stenciled in black above a drawing of a great white. His new hat comes with a couple other upgrades. It's got the ubiquitous gold fishhook bill clip glinting in the sunlight and a silver tarpon pin hovering just above the R in shark. Finally, although Joe is holding an identically sized micro bluegill in each picture, we can see how far he's progressed by his facial expressions. While in the first photo, his face is clearly splitting with pride and elation at the fish he just caught, his countenance in the second photo makes it clear that he now knows this fish's size isn't worthy of photographic enshrinement. He's probably just posing with it to placate his mom. And finally, in the background of the second photo, we have perhaps my favorite detail, a city pigeon (laughs) creeping up the dock from behind eyeing the fish like an oversized pretzel and scheming on how he's going to steal that bluegill out of this little kid's hand. Okay, are you done? Is that it? Is that end of rant? (laughs) Because now I have to tee up because I just have a few things of points of clarification. (laughs) The Mickey Mouse hat. The the, the listeners aren't going to get to defend themselves. Go ahead. Uh, Go no, ahead. no, no, no. But this is a special case because it's me. The Mickey Mouse hat was authentic, <laughs> purchased at Disney. Okay, um, it looks it. Yeah, and the, the the shark hat with the tarpon pin. Tarpon, I remember, was the fish I aspired to catch. I was enamored with tarpon, even though I didn't know where they were or where they lived uh, at the time. But the thing you missed, which is an easy one to miss, in the uh, the the year later photo, the cut off T shirt, salmon colored photo. So I'm also wearing a freestyle watch. You remember freestyle watches? I did see that actually, and I I decided that I was I was already going too long winded, and I decided I'd let the watch go. But yeah, was it a swatch? No, no, product? no. Freestyle was the brand, and I liked it because the freestyle logo was a little shark fin. Do you remember this? Mm, oh, I told. Yeah, I absolutely remember that. Yep, yep, I do. Anyway. I'm going to play by the rules, and I will put both of these photos on my Instagram. And all I will say is that uh, your mom has already sent along photos of you. A lot more choices than my mom sent you. So uh, the next time you guys hear this segment, the tables will have turned, but uh, we don't want this to be all about us, even though you might want it to be all about us. So as Miles suggested, find those awkward fishing photos and send them to us at Ben at the By the way, you can nominate a friend. Like if you're thinking like, oh my God, I got Absolutely. this picture. I got this picture of Robbie on my phone. I'm sending right now. Send it. We'll rip them apart. And, um, you know, say that's thanks to you. And post it on social media. You know, man, of course, Miles has to fully shame me when there's barely any time left in the show <laughs> to defend myself. And then rather than eat up more time defending myself, I'm just going to give him the floor again so you can get a deeper understanding of his dislike of Halloween mm-hmm. via our end of the line segment, in which we tell you what you should be tying on the ends of your lines this weekend. He's got something appropriately black and orange that stings worse than a small sewing needle shoved inside a Butterfinger. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. To cap off our Halloween episode, we are taking a hard look at a classic Western fly. And before I say the name, 
I feel like I need to recognize the uh, uncouth nomenclature. It's called a bitch creek. I'm not entirely sure how it got that name or when. Other than it originating somewhere in Montana 80-ish years ago, no one seems to know much about its origins. In George F. Grant's classic book, Montana Trout Flies, he admits that even he couldn't figure out the exact provenance of this particular bug. The general consensus among the people who talk about this kind of obscure nonsense is that the fly may be named for Idaho's Bitch Creek, which is a tributary of the Teton River. That name is said to be a corruption of the French word biche, which means doe, as in female deer. French fur trappers originally named that water Anse de Biche, and it seems like some of the ingrates who came after butchered the name into the unfortunate version that we have today. To me, the Bitch Creek looks like Halloween on a hook. It's orange, black, furry, and wiggly, kind of like a demonic maggot. And also like Halloween, the Bitch Creek is overdressed, overhyped, and leaves me feeling cheated and a little regretful every time I really get into it. The Bitch Creek is very similar to a fly I covered in a past episode, the girdle bug. Except the girdle bug and its modern offshoot, the rubber legs, embody a near-perfect marriage of simplicity and effectiveness, while the Bitch Creek is a prototype for the worst parts of modern fly design, taking something that's easy to tie and catches fish and making it harder to tie and less effective. Many quote-unquote new flies just borrow from perfectly good existing patterns, swap out a couple materials, and add seven steps. The end result is a fly that takes 10 extra minutes to produce, but is equally or perhaps less productive than the original. But hey, it looks cool. Once again, it feels a lot like Halloween. Instead of the Girdlebug's classic black, the Bitch Creek uses a combination of orange and black chenille. In order to make that work, you need to add in a wire rib to hold the two chenilles in place or get even more complicated and weave them together. Just for some extra fun with a finicky material, it's got saddle hackle wrapped around the thorax because the four rubber legs just weren't enough legs, I guess. All right, so this is a little hyperbolic. The Bitch Creek isn't a particularly complicated fly to tie as far as flies go. We're not talking about a, a feather game changer. But as you can probably tell, I'm a little salty toward Bitch Creeks, and in fact, I'm not finished. Bitch Creeks supposedly represent salmon fly nymphs, but if that's the case, their coloring makes no sense. Adult salmon flies are, indeed, black and orange, but the nymphs, the subadults that live underwater, have no orange on them at all. The Bitch Creek is a subsurface fly, so adding that orange just makes them look less like the prey they're supposed to be imitating. But the ultimate reason I dislike this fly is because I don't think I've ever caught a trout on a Bitch Creek. They're one of those bugs that you supposedly have to have in your box because, you know, it's a classic. But really, there are far simpler and more effective options. And in that sense, they really are like Halloween. The overdressed holiday where adults spend hours of time and hundreds of dollars putting together costumes in the hope that other adults will, finally, for one night, pay attention to them. Before I go, though, one thing, I have discovered a saving grace for Bitch Creeks. Though they may not be very useful in their intended environment or on their intended quarry, they are dynamite for panfish and small bass in lakes and ponds. Those little bastards can't get enough of them. So while I don't recommend you going out and tying or buying a box of Bitch Creeks, if you already have some, don't toss them out. Just move them from the western trout box to the warm water box. 
So that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed our nod to my least favorite holiday. <laughs> Learn that you can get a good deal on waiters if you pee in them first and got motivated to watch the Blair Witch Project during your next Netflix and chill. Yeah, and as always, keep those questions, comments, stories, bars, awkward photos now, sale items, and concerns coming to bent at com. We love hearing from you. As Freddy Krueger would say, you are all our children now. Matter of fact, here he is saying it to uh, Bill Dance. You are all my children now. All right, just calm down. I mean, there's a needle sharp. See you, old boy. <laughs> Uh, this is almost making me like Halloween. Stay safe out there tomorrow night. Drink Black Rifle coffee to perk up before heading out with the kids. And remember to soak their candy and bleach for at least 24 hours to remove all the COVID. Also, it's mischief night, but there's still a toilet paper shortage. So be responsible, kids, and just smash the mailbox instead. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.